This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. A very good morning to everyone. It's always a privilege to gather with God's people, something we do not take for granted because that is God's gift for us if we belong to Him. Let me begin this time by praying together, asking Him to work in our hearts and our minds and our hands that His Word will strengthen us in this coming week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that every time we open up Your Word, it does not go empty because Your Word is like a double-edged sword, that God, it will pierce all that reads them. So Father, today, this morning, we pray that Your Word will be real to us as our mind engage with it, and our hearts be transformed by it, and our hands be strengthened by it. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what would you give to someone who has everything? Has that question come to your mind before? Perhaps I see smiles going around, Christmas, birthday, that question comes up um, often. That's a question that comes when we think of buying birthday gifts or Christmas gifts for people who do not like stuff. What do you buy or what do you give to someone who has everything? On such occasions, some people simply buy tons of chocolates to sweeten the friendship or the tummy, some fancy kitchenware, more shirts, toys, photo frames, buffet vouchers as if you really need it. Plenty of stuff. Perhaps some of those who are more thoughtfully frustrated, they'll just give a, a card and when you open it, it says, Happy Birthday or Merry Christmas. I've donated on your behalf to a worthy cause. You know, on such occasion, perhaps the cliche uh, words become meaningful. It is the thoughts or the hearts that counts. What do you give to someone who has everything? Now, if you're going to meet someone even greater, a king, what will you give to a king who owns everything? who owns the land, the people, the riches, the very lives that you have. For many Christmas, I've always wondered, the thought comes to my mind about the Magi in the Bible. When they were getting excited and planning their journey to meet the king, what goes through their mind? What what will we bring to see this great king? What will we bring to a king who owns the cosmos, who owns the star? What will we bring? And I, I'm sure they've wrecked their brain for a long time. And they came out with this, gold, frankincense, and mirth. Well, these are precious gifts recorded even in the ancient days. They are gifts offered to kings, even gods, when they are worshipped. They are not gifts that the king actually needs, but they represent the honour due to the king or to the great one. Some scholars, they have suggested the gift symbolises Gold, meaning Jesus' kingship, frankincense, representing his priestly role, nerve, prefiguring his death and embalmment. Well, I I think when the Magi's plan of the gift, they didn't really know all these things, but just they just know that the king they are visiting is well worth all that they can give. So I don't have gold with me here. Some of your golden rings are there. I've got mirth and frankincense straight from Beth, uh, straight from Jerusalem gift shop. 
So, if you're interested to take a look, I'll have a smell how it feels like. Feel free to take a look later. But this morning, as we step into Matthew 2, we're invited to meet the king who owns everything. Who owns even history itself. Because this king is the one whom God has spent millenniums and centuries paving the way to say that he is coming. He owns even history. The king whose records are being penned into scriptures long before his arrival. And the arrival of this king has finally come. So as we come to meet this king in Matthew 2, we are invited to meet a king who owns everything, who owns history, the king who has everything. And we'll quickly discover, perhaps with the measure of the East 2, that this king is unlike any kings that existed. Because he's a king that is so high, he owns the stars, but so low to be with the forgotten. He's so great that his power to buy out sinners, but he's so weak and humbled in his presence that people think lowly of him. So this morning, as we are invited to meet Jesus, God's King, the Anointed One, I hope we will be ready to take a journey to actually hear what kind of a king he is. In fact, if you have your Bible or your bulletin, or your Bible, it would be great to look at Matthew 2 as I begin, or invite us to step into Jerusalem, and you know, into Bethlehem, where this true king was revealed. So if you have your Bible, look at it with me from Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when he rose and have come to worship him. Now Bethlehem is a familiar place for many of us. We just celebrated Christmas. We've just heard about it earlier on. It's a small town nine kilometers down south. I've got a map there. Down south of Jerusalem. This is the birthplace of David. This is the place where David was first anointed as a king. It has rich history. By this time of Jesus' birth, Bethlehem was unimpressive, as Israel doesn't have its own king, really. It was under the rule of the Roman Empire, under the king chosen by the Romans. And so it happened at this time, where Judea was ruled by foreign powers, there appeared a group of foreigners called Magi from the east, and when you hear Magi, what comes to your mind? It often comes, if, it often reminds me of Christmas songs. You know the song, We Three Kings? Uh, I'm not going to sing to you, I'm going to read to you. It says, We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts with travels afar, fields and fountain, moor and mountain, following yon the star. This song has many winds, and I love the tune. But the first paragraph is probably wrong. Because Magi, they are the real stories, those who travel afar to visit a king. He is, they themselves are not king, they are known as Magi. And in ancient places like Babylon or Persia, they are astrologers, sorcerers, enchanters, magicians. Well, the word magician came from the word Magi in Greek. They were people who practice occult magic interpretation of dreams and all secret arts. Perhaps they will be great advisors to pagan kings, but they have no place in a Jewish kingdom because these are against God's word. 
And meanwhile, the word Orient, sometimes as Chinese, you think, perhaps the wise man came from China. Have you heard of that? And they'll give you all these um, words in Chinese that, that points to God. I guess it's probably best to leave it as the Magi from the East, wherever they are, whether it's from Babylon, Persia, or, or further on. We do not know, and we do not need to know, but they are not locals. And finally, the Bible does mention three gifts, but really they didn't mention three wise men. So it could be two, it could be twenty, it could be two hundred who arrived looking for him. Who knows? But well, the story of the stars, or the study of the stars, have led this Magi to the capital city of the Jews, to Jerusalem. They check in at the king's palace, because where else do you look for a king but the palace? And at that time, Herod the Great, he was the Roman-appointed king, and he was... He's a great man, really. He, he was a great builder. He was um, a very capable man, but he was extremely paranoid and ruthless. So the Magi turned up at Herod's doorstep, uninvited, looking for the king of the Jews. They came because of a star. They came with gifts, and they came to bow their knees to this king. Now you can imagine the, the paranoid and ruthless Herod when he sees the sudden appearance of foreign uh, dignitaries looking for the king of Jews. Well, isn't that a great honor? Except that as they continue to speak, he's not really looking for him. They're looking for the king of the Jews. Isn't he the king of the Jews? And says, not you, the real one. Can you imagine if you are Herod and he was upset? Well, perhaps that's an understatement. Look at verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Well, the, the disturbance that Herod has was great enough that the rest of Jerusalem start to feel disturbed with him. And so he gathered his own advisors. Well, he doesn't have magi, so he got chief priests and teachers of laws. And he demanded, where is the Messiah to be born? Well, Herod seems to know his scriptures a little bit. He's not really a born Jew, but being a king, wanting to please the Jews, he knows his history. And when he asked this question, surprise, surprise, the people's chief priests and the teachers of law, they've got the answer straight away. Well, it seems that when they went to the religious schools, the, the topic of Messiah is one of the things they need to pass and do well. They need to get the distinction to, to, to be the advisors. And so they know their words. They know the Messiah King comes in Bethlehem, so they gave that summary in verse 6. But now I want you to just put a thumb at Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. I want to take us to look at the original promise that God has given, which you have read in Micah 5, verse 2 to 4, to note what they were quoting and what they have also missed out. So if you have your thumb there, you can look up and compare these two passages. And this is what Micah 5, 2 to 4 you read, and I will read to you again. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clan of Judah, out of you will come for me. And listen, one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel, you'll be abandoned until the time when she was, who was in labor, best of son, and the rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites. For he stands and shepherds his flock in the, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And listen, they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach 
the ends of the earth. Well, the religious elites, they knew their scriptures well. Out of Bethlehem would come this Messiah king. Perhaps they didn't mention the details that a king is of no origin or ordinary origins. He comes from ancient times. And this king, he comes for his people to gather them with power that comes from God. This king will rule with God's majesty. This king's greatness goes beyond the Jews. You shouldn't be surprised because his greatness reached the ends further than the east to the ends of the world. So Herod is not in the same league as the true king that is born in Bethlehem. So as the religious leaders utter the prophecy, or part of it at least, a great confrontation comes to the listeners. Who and how would the hearers respond to this promised king? How would Herod, the Magi, the chief priest, religious elites, and Jerusalem respond to a promise that is given so great and so long ago? For the Magis, we know they were Gentiles and they head straight to Bethlehem. They found a child, his mother, Mary, in verse 11. They were overjoyed. They bowed down and worshipped this child as a king. Now, it's worth noting, even from the ancient days, that people would pay allegiance to a human king, a mere human king. But they would bow and worship if they viewed a king to be divine. But here, these Gentiles whose practice would have made them sinners deserving death if they were Jews. According to the Mosaic law, they bow down and they worship Jesus. He's the true king from God. What was not mentioned by the religious elites in Matthew 2 verse 6, by revealing Micah, was beginning to unravel. That the king's power stretches beyond Herod, beyond even King David of old. It stretches to the ends of the earth. Such an amazing picture as they worship baby Jesus. You know what we're seeing? We're catching a glimpse of what is happening now. Because now, even from Jerusalem right up to New Zealand or further, you have people who will bow down to this Jesus as the divine king from God. And he will not stop. Meanwhile, what did the chief priests, teachers of the law do with the news? That God's promised king has come. Well, guess what? The chief priests and the teacher of the law in Jerusalem, they did something more amazing than the Magi. What did they do? They did nothing. Here they have the promise of God of all. When they hear it, they give their allegiance to Herod. And so Herod, in response, says, let's get rid of this king. Dear friends, at the birth of Jesus, the sword is being drawn. And there is a need for response to that because the power of God is brought in in confrontation with the powers of the world. The great news is out. It's no longer hidden in scriptures. God's king is here. Which side will the hearers be on? In fact, as this message comes to you and me, which side are we on? The birth of the true king reveals and challenges the hearts of people. You can stay quiet, but when the news comes, it opens up and calls you 
to reveal your heart. There's no neutrality to the message of Jesus. Worshipping Him is a decision. Rejecting Him is a decision. Being silent is also a decision. There's no different from rejecting Him. There's no neutrality in yours and my relationship when it comes to a revealed King that God has for us. And perhaps this is a sober warning, sober message, that knowledge does not save anyone as did to Herod and the chief priests of Jerusalem. Knowledge does not save anyone. It is how we respond to that message that makes a difference. Do we bow our knees to King Jesus or do we live and do we live for Him or do we play the religious games of knowing the knowledge, having the knowledge but just toiling with it but never fully giving ourselves to Him? We see that happening repeatedly in Matthew. We cannot, and we continue to see it today, the tension between knowledge and submission. Because we can't have one and we can't choose to have one and not the other. So, so there we have it as Jesus appears. Now, we, we don't want to miss out the surprise here as you look on that the most unlikely magi, they who have been excluded, when they bow their knees to Jesus and they obey God's vision not to go back to King Herod, but they turn their back against him and move forward, they are the ones who rejoice in having met the true king. Now, Bethlehem clearly revealed to us God's true king. It demands a response. But now we must move on because things are just going to get really nasty. So come with me as we look at verse 13. When they're gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child, his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now you may ask, why escape to Egypt? Let me just give the really practical reason because Egypt is, is further from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a small town. Egypt is big. In fact, according to historians, Egypt at that time had about a million Jews and it's not under the rule of Herod. It's going to be hard for Herod to find the child in Egypt. So verse 14, Joseph got up, took the child, his mother, during the night left for Egypt where he stayed there until the death of Herod. You can almost feel the urgency of the message of the angel, the adrenaline in Joseph, the rushing down, and they escaped. And verse 16 goes on. When Herod realized that he had outwitted, he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity who were two years old and under. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi, there can be only one king of the Jews, and Herod said, it will be me. And so Joseph married Jesus with their few belongings. Well, they had some, some good stuff with them. They headed off to Egypt. And then the horror begins as we read on in verse 17 and 18. Herod massacred all the little boys in Jerusalem and his vicinity. And this is what was reminded as um, Matthew writes this. Verse 17 and 18. Then what was said through the prophet of Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, what is this prophecy? Who is who was Rachel? Well, Rachel is not someone in Bethlehem who has many children and so she's weeping. 
But the word, the, the phrase Rachel weeping actually is a historical event that happened in Genesis 35. Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob, also known as Israel, and she died at Ramah while giving birth to a son. And as Rachel breathed her last, she called her child, the newborn, you are son of my trouble. Great was the sorrow, but Israel, the father, renamed the child. No, you are son of my right hand. That's the meaning of the word Benjamin. The arrival of Christ, of the child, brought sorrow. It also brought hope within God's people. Now, and what is the original context that um, that's being used here? It's actually taken from Jeremiah because in the time of Jeremiah is also one the time of the greatest sorrows amongst God's people is the time of the exile to Babylon. And the people were leaving their land, leaving their promise, leaving the gifts that God has given, and they were weeping. And God gave, and Jeremiah said this word, but I want you to look into the context of this verse, because while they were weeping, something else was mentioned. Let me bring you to Jeremiah 31. You can keep your finger at Matthew, but let me read to you the whole context of Jeremiah. Let me read to you from verse 15 to 17. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. But now listen to this, verse 16. This is what the Lord says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears because they will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. So tragic was the time of the Babylon and the grief of God's people that they could not contain the sorrow, but God told them, don't cry because hope will come with it. So as you come back to Matthew, listen, you recognize what Matthew is trying to show us. As he says, as King Herod kills the boys, at one level is a grief that is beyond comfort. How do you comfort a, a, a father or a mother who is lost? Their boys can't be comforted, but yet, in the context of the prophecy, there is hope. Because out of all the deaths, one boy survived the grievous event. In fact, you have quickly remember, there's another tyrant just 1,500 years before this. He was a tyrant, he was afraid, and he killed the boys of God's people. You know who's that? Pharaoh. But one boy escaped. Do you know who's that? Moses. And Moses was used by God to rescue Israel out of their slavery. And Jews, the Jews of Jesus' time, they are familiar with the story. They know the story of grief. They know the story of hope amidst Rachel's weeping. They know the hope amidst the exile of Babylon. They know the hope amidst the death of the boys in Egypt. And here, Matthew brings Exodus 2.0. There is hope amidst the killing of the mad king because a child like Moses will come back and bring salvation. And so he says, verse 15, Jesus stayed in Egypt until the death of Herod and so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I call my son. 
And here comes the beginning of salvation. Dear friends, we live in a much greater slavery than the time of Moses. Moses cannot save us from the slavery that you and I are in. He can save the physical slavery, but we are in the slavery of sin and death. And only one much greater than Moses will bring us out from the Egypt of slavery that we're in. The slavery that you and I cannot get out by ourselves. Now, we have read this last week, but let me read to you the name of Jesus. And that's in Matthew one twenty one. Mary will give birth to a son and you have to call him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That is Jesus. Now all these prophecies, they do not just reveal who Jesus is, the saving king, they reveal yours and my spiritual condition. And it will only lead to death unless the king, the son of God, comes to bring us back. So dear friends, as Bethlehem, God revealed Jesus to be a true king, greater than Herod, greater than King David. As we come to Egypt, God revealed to us Jesus is the saving king, one greater than Moses, and who alone can save us. We come to a stage where we are to ask, when Jesus began to speak, he hasn't spoken, have you realized that he has not spoken? But when Jesus finally opens his mouth to speak, how will the world respond to him? We'll be hearing it in the weeks to come. Will we listen to him or will we not? Over the next few weeks, this is what we'll see. We'll see some people who will listen to him and will turn as sheep to their shepherd and repent and be saved. There'll be those who will go head on with him and reject him. In the midst of this too, there'll be a group who will listen and follow him for a while. But in the end, they'll raise their fists and say, and you die on the cross. That happens in the story of Matthew. That happens today. There'll be those who will follow Jesus. There'll be those who just reject Him. There'll be those that seem to follow Him. By the end of their life, they reveal that actually they have not. What kind of listeners will you and I be as we hear about and from Jesus? Because there's no neutrality to this king. So we've traveled to Bethlehem, we've traveled to Egypt. Now Matthew wants to bring us to one last place. Not to just show us who he is and what he'll do, but what kind of a king he is. So look with me to verse 19 to 22. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. He said, get up, take the child, his mother, go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child's mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. When Herod's dead, Joseph finally could get home, perhaps to Bethlehem. But then he heard his son Archelaus was reigning and he was afraid. Because according to history, after Herod died, his land was distributed to three sons. Archelaus get the part of Judea. But Archelaus is worse than the dead. He was an extreme tyrant. He was sensual to the extreme. He was a hypocrite. He was a plotter. He was so bad that even the emperor of Rome like hates him and deported him by AD 6. So here it is. Instead of going back to Bethlehem, he went to Galilee. And here is the last two verses of today's passage. Having been warned in a dream, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived 
in a town named Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. You know, the, the rest you actually could find references of the prophecy, but this one, verse 23, is an odd one because if you're a scholar, you look at the time it says, and the prophet says, and you look back, the prophets didn't say that the Messiah will be a Nazarene. But the prophets did say that the Messiah will be a despised one. And that's exactly what Nazarene or Nazareth and Galilee is. It is the right place because it is not the place for the spirituals. It is the place of the spiritually rejected. You know, the rabbis of the time would say, if you want riches, go to the north. If you want wisdom, come to the south, which is where Jerusalem is. And this is what happens. I'll bring you to three short exclamation marks in John whenever this is heard. In John 1.46, you might have heard this in your Bible study. The moment Nathanael, he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, he cried, Nazareth! Can anything good come from Nazareth? John 7.41, some people discuss it. Ah, do you think Jesus is the Messiah, the King? And other people cry, can the Messiah come from Galilee? And even at chapter 7.52 in John, there was this man, the Pharisee, an important man, Nicodemus. He, he loved Jesus and he, want, he was a ruling member of the Jewish council. He wanted to defend Jesus. And he said to, to the leaders there, the chief priests, shouldn't we at least have a trial? And the chief priests look at Look at Nicodemus as if he's an idiot and he says, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, you will find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. So Nazareth of Galilee is not the royal palace. It is not the religious schools, the place where religious schools will be. It's not the place of the kings. It is the place of the rejects, those who are spiritually rejected. But that is where Jesus begins his ministry. He does not identify himself with the spiritual elites. He identifies with those who are the spiritual rejects, the despised, because he did not come to save good people. Because there's none. Jesus comes to save those who recognize their status before God. Those who come and they don't butter with God and say, God, I'll believe you if you give me a house, you give me a, a marriage, you give me something. Those who come to God are those who say, God, please save me. I'm desperate. I'm twin. I'm, I'm, I'm bounded by the sins in my life and the seaweed of trashes of my life. And I'm sinking into the sea of death and self-induced judgment. Please rescue me. That is why Jesus comes. He didn't come and live among the religious elites. He came to live with and for those who are desperate for God. So friends, it should amaze us as we look at Matthew 2 and the historical knowledge, God bringing His glorious Son, born that poor couple raised among the religious rejects so that He could identify with you and with me. And God have mercy on us if we prefer to be identified with the Herods of our life. God have mercy on you and me if we despise him and prefer the kings that look glorious in our days. Because for our sake, this is what happens to Jesus. Our familiar verse in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom 
people hide their faces. He was despised. We held him in low esteem. But surely he did that to take out our pain, bore our suffering. He considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Dear friends, as we come to the end of Matthew 2, Matthew presents us this king, the true king of God, the saving king of God, and the humble king of God for us. But how will we respond? If you're not a Christian, you're someone who's visiting, you're someone who's still exploring, can I plead with you to consider what it actually means if Jesus is the king of this world? The weakness he has is not to show us how weak he is, but to identify and show us how desperate and weak we are. On the day when Christ returns, he will be Jesus, the Son of God, in his full glory. And I pray that you and I, we are ready when he comes. Because he will not come as a humble king, he will come as the king who will judge everyone. But if you're a Christian, the question will come for us, will we give our worship to Jesus in a way that he rightly deserves? Will we lay before him all our treasures, not in a calculative way as if he needs anything, but because he is our king, that's why we'll give everything we can to him. Will we lay before him our very life as a fragrant offering? Will we turn away from the things and people that contends for our loyalty with Jesus? Because we can't give our hearts to the King Harris of our world and still love King Jesus. What are the King Harris of your world? I don't know. It could be marriage. It could be children. It could be wealth. It could be our boss. It could be our clients. I don't know what your kingdom is. Well, I, I would think about my kings, but Jesus make it clear there is no choosing of two kings and live with both. We choose one and we give up another. And will we recognize our mortality and live knowing that the king will return? And will we help each other so that we do not waste our life to serve king, whatever your name is, you know, King Andrew, and still say that we want to live for Jesus? Perhaps we need to Remind ourselves on that regularly. Perhaps one of the practical things we can do is this. You know, take out your handphone, you know, your Google Calendar if you have, and put in what are the times that we'll most likely worship the kings of this world. If you're on Wednesday day, Wednesday afternoon where you're going to meet your boss and have to face him, or it could be various people at various times. Perhaps there's a time where you put a note and it buzzes you and say, remember, Herod is not a king, but Jesus is a king. Or perhaps you have a Bible study group, a one-to-one Bible reading friend. It would be a good time to say, this week, why don't you remind me and I remind you that Jesus is king and not Herod's. For indeed, Jesus is the true king. Can I pray with us as we close? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus coming to us because we have lost our ability to come to you. Thank you for the history that paved his arrival so that we recognize Jesus as our promised king. And Father, for those of us who are still thinking through the message of the gospel, we pray God that you make your truth real and Holy Spirit convicts our hearts that we do not live by intellectual exercise, but we live by responding to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we prevent the devil, the world, our own sins, the things that we are drawn to, that they will not quickly cloud our minds and rob us of our loyalty 
to Christ. For us Christians, will you help us to cling to Jesus, to continue to submit to his kingship, and be willing to hand, to hand him all our lives, our treasures, because he is king and no one else. For the glory of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.